Okay, so uh, two more weeks of the Minor Prophets, um, and uh, then we'll be taking a break uh, here in Bible uh, Overview, this kind of survey we've been doing. Uh, we'll take a break until January. January, we'll start back with the writings, uh, which will be Psalms and Proverbs and Job and the wisdom stuff, and then um, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. So that'll be a full, you know, a two-session thing, six, two six-week sessions, so a 12-week thing. Uh, to finish the Hebrew Bible. So uh, if you're interested in coming back and continuing on in the storyline, um, then I encourage you to do that. So, uh, but we'll do, today we'll do Habakkuk, um, Zephaniah, and Haggai. So three smaller books. And then next week we'll finish with Zechariah and Malachi. Okay, so let's uh, start with, um, I just want to mention again, some of these books we've been talking about. Um, I think that there is evidence uh, not only in the history of uh, the synagogue, the history of uh, the scrolls and the, the, the actual textual evidence, but also in the literature itself, that you can think of these 12 books as really being uh, collected as one, one scroll or one book. So although we have 12 uh, individual different authors. You have this uh, kind of idea of the, the collection of the 12 of them into one writing and kind of retrofitted for one story. And I think we can see evidence of this by, um, you know, the, 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 the start of them being Hosea and this kind of programmatic um, uh, programmatic kind of uh, verses here in Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Um, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So this is actually becomes kind of a pro programmatic kind of couple of verses for all of the minor prophets and not just Hosea. Those, that's the, the, I'd say those two verses are the most uh, thematic verses for the book of Hosea, but they're also the most thematic for all of the minor prophets. And um, we see this theme coming on and continuing the theme of the major prophets, which is that the restoration will come after the exile. Well, um, as I've uh, been talking about uh, the minor prophets, connect this restoration specifically to the Messiah. And uh, last week we actually saw um, the connection to some very specific prophecies about the Messiah, including that of Micah, that the Messiah would come from uh, Bethlehem. So we're going to continue on this theme today, and then at the end we're going to talk about how this all kind of connects to the overall theme of the story of the Hebrew Bible. So, all right, let's jump in here uh, in Habakkuk. Uh, book of Habakkuk, written by the prophet Habakkuk, uh, sometime around 605 B.C. We don't know much about this guy, Habakkuk, uh, but he's believed to be uh, a contemporary of Jeremiah. Um, that's from you know, Hebrew tradition. Um, and so, you know, again, this is sim would be similar time frame to him. Uh, so sometime around 605 would be his ministry and when he would... Uh, have composed this book. So uh, let's jump in here, Habakkuk 1. 
a prophet named Habakkuk sees a vision of the Lord. God demonstrates to him that Judah will be punished by Babylon. Of course, that's a similar theme to Jeremiah. Uh, Habakkuk first asks why God has tolerated the wickedness of the people for so long. Uh, so he laments here on the state of Judah. Uh, he sees nothing but violence and distress and abuse of the poor uh, within the land. Uh, so he's lamenting here. He's very distressed. Uh, God assures him that they will be punished. He says he is, quote, raising up the Chaldeans to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Babylon's armies are swift and violent. Habakkuk demonstrates his faith during this time to come by recognizing that it is coming from God. Quote, you, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. He does not believe that God will totally destroy Judah, but then only Babylon will be left to destroy others. Uh, so uh, they are especially because then only Babylon will, will be left to destroy others. They are especially wicked and treacherous. So Babylon is not, not presented as a righteous conqueror here, just as a tool of God, because they themselves are wicked and, right, and treacherous. Uh, okay, Habakkuk 2. Uh, Habakkuk waits patiently for a response that will affirm his thinking. God answers him, telling him to write down the revelation he is receiving. God reassures him that judgment will come to the proud. Uh, says it will come at the appointed time. Uh, in the midst of this, midst of all this, the righteous will live by his faith. This is consistent with the example of Abraham, presented in the Pentateuch in Genesis 15:6. Taken together, it is impossible to separate faith and righteousness. Paul uses these texts to support the fact that faith makes one righteous in God's eyes. Those are the blanks there. Faith makes one righteous in God's eyes. It is this, not one's works, that justifies him before him or her before God. Uh, so I've got some references there. I encourage you to look those up later, but Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.17, they both actually use intertextuality with Habakkuk 2.4. So God's response to Habakkuk is that he and others will be challenged to have faith during this time of turmoil. So yes, seem, things seem terrible, but you should live by faith. That's the, that's the message here. The author of Hebrews uses similar theology to, in challenging New Covenant believers to have faith during times of trial. God then pronounces woe on Babylon For everyone will know who he is. This judgment will come because of the violence and disgrace they have brought to other nations. 
Woe is also pronounced on Babylon for their worship of idols, which are man-made. God is the one who is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Uh, Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk finishes with a prayer of trust. He prays for the deliverance of his people, wanting him to redeem the remnant by punishing the wicked. So this is actually very similar to the book right before us. Uh, In Nahum 1, God's universal judgment of other nations would result in the salvation of his own people. So that's a similar concept here. Uh, He says that God has the ability to rage against the rivers and control the sun and moon. He reminds God that he has done such things in the past for the salvation of his people. His language is similar to that of Exodus 15, where God is praised by Moses for delivering his people. Habakkuk will wait patiently throughout Babylon's siege because he knows the salvation will one day come. Though everything will crumble around him, Habakkuk says that he will, quote, exult in the Lord and rejoice in the God of my salvation. So he calls for God's action now, but he's also willing to wait. Um, Let's read this. uh, Chapter 3. Let's see. Could I get a volunteer to read uh, four verses here? Chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Any volunteers? Yeah. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the crown master extreme measurements. Awesome, thank you. So. Um, we've got his, he's calling for God's action now. He wants God to act, but he, you can see the faith here. He's willing to wait. Uh, we see that there in, in verse 16 and then later. He's, he's rejoicing in the Lord. He's willing to wait on his timing because he has faith. This is a great example of the gospel, right? Right here in the, in the Minor Prophets. Um, we don't have to, when we think about the gospel, uh, living by faith, um, trusting in God, we don't have to go just back to Abraham. We can see it very clearly right here uh, in Habakkuk. So uh, let's open it up a little bit for discussion. Think about the meaning of Habakkuk and then the significance. Habakkuk provides us a great example of faith during times of trial. Though everything around him is crumbling, he still praises God. We are challenged to do the same. And then open it up for discussion. How is your faith when times are rough? 
How can we act like a backhack during trial? What future things can we look forward to in these times? Any, any thoughts here? Habakkuk, um, living by faith. Good, yeah, for sure. Yeah, sorry, Ella. It's, it's beautiful, uh, I mean, that it means to um, obey the scriptures fully, mm-hmm. not just like, like I said, even last time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crucial because um, if we don't submit fully to Him, we should not expect anything from Him. Mm-hmm. And so, in the hand, also, it's very important to remember that. Even though we submit fully, again, it's not our timing, it's his timing. Yeah. He does not crunch in our timing. We have to trust and believe that his timing is always perfect. Yeah. Yep. We have to, and, um, and with that in mind, knowing that, I mean, uh, he is created all and the ruler of all. And this is the only way for us is have the close connect, connection with him and be fully submit to him. Cannot be pushed. That that's the key. Yeah. And I mean and that's how I mean, I don't know if you guys ever notice that when you fully submit, when you even read the scriptures in a way you'll see yourself. Good. Thanks. Yeah. I just think it's very timely too. I appreciated Nathan bringing up the fact of um, how bad, like when we were studying Jonah, the, the Assyrians were, you know, because I just think about um, too, you know, yeah. and all of the situation now. And uh, it's just hard to think of, of children now. But all of this is part, God knows all of this, you mm. know. And so um, I just, yeah. I just appreciate the timing of it all. Yeah. 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 Set the scripture up as a standard. Compare ourselves to that. Yep. It's good. Yep. 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 These last yep. verses come back have been my favorite for about forty years. Oh wow. Or more. Who knows? <laughs> and. Uh, my husband passed away 19 years ago. And of course, the time since then has been up and down and up and down. I've got a pretty big family, and mm-hmm. you just have all kinds of stuff. And I always remember these verses no matter what, mm-hmm. God's in charge. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's, it's good. really true. Yeah. It's good. All right, anybody else? Back up. Okay, uh, let's keep going on. We'll get through the next little book here, which is Zephaniah, uh, not to be confused with Zechariah, which we'll do next week, uh, and is much bigger than this book. Um, Zephaniah, uh, written by, again, the prophet named Zephaniah, most likely around 630 B.C. 
so he's believed to have prophesied during Josiah's reign. Uh, we can see that in the verse 1. Um, so Josiah reigned from 640 to 609. So, uh, you know, kings of Judah, we've got Hezekiah, then Manasseh, then uh, Ammon, then Josiah. So um, he would be during this time. So that's kind of why I'm dating it around this, uh, this time period, 630. Okay. Um, okay, so Zephaniah 1. Let's jump in here. Zephaniah, the descendant of King Hezekiah, receives a message from God. So Zephaniah is, um, you know, a person, he's a descendant of Hezekiah, so he's, he's a person of some social standing, okay, that's, so, um, you know, these prophets are all kind of from different backgrounds, um, but this is, this guy's got some, uh, I don't know what, what the word is, um, some, so, yeah, some social gravitas, that's good, yeah, um, so he's not like Amos, who's just a shepherd, right, out in the fields, right, this is, this is a different, a guy with a different background. Uh, so he receives a message from God. The message begins with the judgment coming to Judah. Um, so this comes right after Habakkuk's conclusion about the judgment to come that we saw there uh, in Habakkuk 3. Uh, so the message begins with the judgment coming to Judah. He says that he will wipe away man from the earth. He says he will, quote, cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. He will act against Judah and those who have served others and, quote, have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Uh, included in this is the royalty of Judah. So this would include the, king, the kingly line. Um, God says he will search Jerusalem for the apathetic and those who don't believe that God will act. Uh, Zephaniah, it's the blank there, Zephaniah describes the great day of the Lord. It is coming quickly, full of destruction and darkness. Uh, it will reach both the fortified cities and the high corner towers. So very similar to language in Habakkuk 3 there. Uh, the riches of the people will not be able to save them from the fire of his jealousy. Okay, Zephaniah 2. Uh, Zephaniah moves on to other nations, showing uh, that Judah is not the only one to be judged. Uh, this is consistent with the rest of the prophets. Uh, I see some references there. Uh, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Amos. Uh, the Lord's anger will come, yet a group, quote, will be hidden from this by humbling themselves and seeking righteousness. So this is uh, Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So the destruction of the Philistines will make the land abandoned 
for the remnant of Judah to possess. So there will be a remnant. This is consistent with the rest of the prophets, starting with Isaiah. Uh, Psalm 1, 1 and 37 talk about how one becomes part of this remnant. So we'll get into Psalms in January. Uh, Moab, Ammon, and Ethiopia will also be punished for their arrogance and idolatry. So he, he lists these three nations. These are nations that have, at this point, have historically been um, opposed to Israel. So we're seeing this consistent theme of those who curse you will be cursed. Um, so this behavior has led the nations to worship themselves, the arrogance and idolatry they've been worshiping themselves. Okay, Zephaniah 3. Zephaniah then pronounces woe to Jerusalem and the other nations. Judah has not heeded the Lord and her leaders have sinned. Uh, so Judah's fate will be the same as the nations in chapter 2. Uh, God has cut off the nations, and all who take advantage of God will be punished. This indignation will also result in purifying the lips of the people. In this time, worshipers will come from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Uh, let's read this. This is chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Can I get a volunteer to read those four verses? Okay. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to speak to pray. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation. All my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers and the seas, my worshippers, the daughters of the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offerings. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Thank you. Okay, so got, again, consistent theme, destruction, and then the restoration of the remnant. So this remnant will be a humble people. That's the blank there. This remnant will be a humble people and will do no wrong. The blessings will come to this remnant, including joy, deliverance, renown, and most of all, restoration. God's plan is to, uh, God's plan to bless is accomplished through this restoration, which is in turn accomplished through punishment. Um, God's preservation of a remnant during destruction is also promoted in Genesis 1 through 11, Deuteronomy 27 through 28, Isaiah 40 through 66, and Jeremiah 31 through 34. Um, so the hope, we've seen this theme in the prophets so far. The hope of restoration must come after the destruction. Um, the hope of Zephaniah is kind of pushing itself uh, past the exile. Uh, 
what we're actually going to see next in the next few books, Haggai through Malachi, is that, and this is the reason why these are at the end, is that the hope is actually pushed even a little bit further. Okay, it's not just right after exile, it's actually at a, a even further distant time after the exile in the future. So we'll see that as we uh, jump into Haggai here in a minute. Okay, so um, Zephaniah, let's talk about Zephaniah. What is the significance? Well, um, Zephaniah shows that God punishes in order to create the remnant. He allowed Babylon to purge the people, much like he allows trial and even brings discipline to make believers more mature in Christ. I think this is, again, consistent with God's character. He uses these things in our lives uh, to make us more mature. It helps to remember his purposes during our times of struggle. For discussion, how do you view discipline from God and trial in life? How does an understanding of God's purposes in the exile of Judah affect our view of these things? Any thoughts here? Character of God bringing difficult things for his purposes. Anybody want to share? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Jerry. I think in the modern world, we don't like to view God as the perpetrator of some of these things. Mm-hmm. Like it's something outside of God that takes care of all of this. Mm-hmm. That's something that people would read the Old Testament like we're doing now and realize that God is quite, quite active in that world. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and even the New Testament, we can, James 1, we can see that God, we should see these things and uh, struggles as things that are joy because God has a purpose in them. But then we also see from Hebrews 12 that God disciplines us as well. So, um, yeah, even, even if it's something that is inherently evil, we still know that in his sovereignty that he's allowing it, even though, even though he might not be the creator of the evil or the source of the evil. There is nothing that is happening without him knowing about it um, and him allowing it. What's that? Without him even decreeing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Him allowing it, decreeing it. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I'm go ahead. thinking about Pastor Jerry's wife, Cindy when she had the cancer mm. and that was a trial and her whole focus was to bring glory to God and to use that as an evangelism opportunity when she was being treated and all of that and you know with the second Corinthians 5 today that Rich read um, you know the word reconciliation is in there how many times in that one yeah. like three verses right you know, looking for a heavenly reconciliation, not an earthly one. Right. Right. Yeah. It's good. I think yeah. so often the things we see as horrible atrocities, God sees way beyond and he knows the future and he knows. We think, oh, how can this be good? Mm. God has a plan for us. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Anybody else? Um, yeah. Well, I always think, like in the beginning, God created man in his big image. Mm-hmm. And as we know that God is holy, but he wants us to be holy. And now, the people who are striving to follow him, he's, he's shaping us into his name. Mm-hmm. Us. 
his image. Mm -hmm. And that we are fully obedient. And that's when, in the end, when Jesus when the baby smiles. <laughs> 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 when, um, in the end, when Jesus does come, we will be like him. Mm -hmm. Because we will display his glory. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. That's great. That's long term, yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Oh yeah. It, it, I think about and it's interesting how Jesus says, you know, you're going to be my disciples, and you're going to go amongst them, Judea, and the most parts of the world. And then in Acts chapter eight, we hear about all this persecution and yeah. destruction of the church. Yeah. We studied about a couple of weeks ago, and that drove them to where? Yeah. To Jerusalem, right. Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the yep. earth. Yep. And so, I, I it's not fun when we're going through it. But I hope that as we're going, I hope I, as I go through trials, will stop and ask and think, okay, don't just remove me from this, but what is your purpose? Mm -hmm. And even if I don't understand your purpose, like this study, I trust that it is you're working your will. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a great example of this for sure. Acts. Okay. Uh, let's move on to Haggai, last book for today. Another little small book here. Um, this one's actually only two chapters. So the book of Haggai, again written by the prophet, the same name, uh, 520 BC. So this is actually after the return from exile. So um, <laughs> they're exiled uh, in uh, 586, and so this is actually after the return. They uh, um, their return from exile um, in 538, and then this is uh, Haggai through Malachi is actually after the exile. So you can see kind of some of the, we're going to see the theme of full restoration coming still in the future, even though now we're back from the exile now. Uh, there's going to be, and we'll see this in Daniel as well in the spring, but full restoration will actually come even more distant in the future. So uh, let's jump in here. Haggai 1, a prophet named Haggai, receives a message from the Lord regarding the rebuilding of the temple. The people have so far delayed this action and thus have not experienced the Lord's blessings. God tells them to rebuild it so that he will receive glory. Uh, let's see, Haggai's trying to show that the people back from exile is no different than them being in exile if God is not with them, right? It's about the presence of God, that Ezekiel theme. Um, so that's why it's important for them to rebuild the temple. Temple signifies God's presence and man's commitment. So Zerubbabel and the other leaders obey and show reverence for the Lord. Uh, so Zerubbabel is uh, the governor, kind of, of Judah, who he's allowed by Cyrus and the Persians to come back, to lead the people back um, when they return from exile. Cyrus decrees that they can come back, and Zerubbabel is placed in charge. So he's kind of a governor at this point. Um, but he is in the kingly line. So uh, then God tells them that he is with them. He motivates 
and stirs up the people to work on the temple. Their blessings in the future are foreshadowed by this temple, much like they are in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So the temple is connected to God's presence. The temple is connected to the restoration of the people. Um, and that's, that's what Haggai is trying to do here in connecting these things. And again, this is about obedience, right? It's, um, you, gotta, you need to obey me. I'm, I'm asking you to do this. Uh, to have presence with me again, um, and they do. Their, their initial response is to obey Zerubbabel and the other leaders. So, okay, Haggai 2. Haggai receives another message from the Lord, encouraging Zerubbabel and the people. Again, Zerubbabel's in charge. He's a descendant of David. Uh, they are comparing the temple being built to the more magnificent temple of the old to Solomon's temple, right? And God makes three promises to them. The first is that he will be with the people just like he was when he brought them out of Egypt. You know, Ezekiel's theme is presence of God, but you can really connect this all the way back to Exodus, right? It's God's presence was with them, Mount Sinai, out in the wilderness, He's traveling around with them in the tabernacle. That's really where we can kind of connect this idea of God being present with the people. Um, the second is that because, so he promises them that, that he will be with them just like he was then. The second promise is that because he will be with them, they do not need to fear. And then the third promise is that God will fill the temple with wealth from other nations. Thus, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. So he says this because they're comparing. They're saying, well, this is not not going to be as great. And you actually, I mean, as far as the actual structure, um, you see in the New Testament too, right? There's comparisons. This is not really not the same. This is really not as great as the Solomon Temple. But he's, God's making them these promises that it will be greater than the former for these reasons. Haggai receives a third message from the Lord, this one emphasizing renewal. Before their obedience, the people were unclean. They were not blessed by God. However, Haggai says that from this day onward, God will bless the people. Uh, this is very similar. We're seeing the same theme or scene here in Ezra chapter 5. So we'll talk about this again in the spring. But God will honor their repentance and renew them. Those are the blanks there. Repentance and renew them. Now he has every intention of doing this. This, re this renewal of the repentant. But... Again, the theme of the Minor Prophets is this restoration is connected to the Messiah. So that's what this next section is about. A fourth message comes from Haggai, telling him that Zerubbabel is special among the kings of the nations. Again, he's in the line of David, so he's the leader right now. And God says uh, that Zerubbabel is special among the kings of the nations. He says that he will make him 
like a signet ring, which is essentially, you know, it, it's a ring with a, a seal on it. Uh, he seals him as this special king. He says this will happen on that day. Zerubbabel's presence as a descendant of David, it's the blank there, descendant of David, indicates that the future promises of the Davidic king and his leadership in the overflow, overthrow of the nations are still in effect. Uh, so we see all these promises. I've got several scripture references there about the Messiah, the Messiah being the conqueror over the other nations. Um, Zerubbabel is not the Messiah himself, but he is the sign. This I think a few weeks ago we talked about this concept of typology, right? This is a clear uh, typology uh, here, which is intended by the author, uh, Haggai. Uh, but Zerubbabel is not the Messiah himself, but he is a type of the future leader. Uh, Zechariah, which we'll talk about next week, um, um, is a contemporary of Haggai, and he will confirm this when he, uh, it's in chapter 6, verse 15, he'll confirm this about Zerubbabel, him being a type of the Messiah to come. Okay, so uh, just to summarize here what we're uh, talking about in Haggai, um, it's about uh, the future restoration through the new covenant, the spiritual blessings that come from it, um, we see here in chapter 1, verse 9, uh, you, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So at this point, they're not blessed. Then if you skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. So you have not been blessed, but I will bless you now. And then 21 through 23, uh, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So uh, he will bless them now, but again, this blessing is connected to the future blessing that comes through the Messiah. Okay, so that's summary of this quick summary of this book, uh, this little treasure here, Haggai. Uh, significance, Haggai shows that when we are obedient to him, blessings come in the new covenant. These are spiritual blessings that come as a result of obedience to the Davidic king. Before this obedience, we are un unclean before God. So again, connection of God's character uh, when we obey him, there comes blessings. Here in the Old Testament, we see a lot of these blessings come through, again, this idea of pomegranate and these things that your house is blessed with. But we can make the connection here in the, in the New Covenant to are spiritual blessings. Do you ever disobey God and then wonder why you aren't close to him? Do you ever think that it is God's fault you aren't close to him? Why 
are some things that make us disobey him? What are some things that make us disobey him, and how can we avoid him, avoid them? Any thoughts here? Just um, obedience to God, blessings that come. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And they should not receive anything from God. Yep. James 1, yeah, that's right. It comes down to just, I want what I want where I want it, and if mm. you don't give it to me, it's your fault. You know, mm. it's our selfishness and our pride and arrogance before God, not the humility. It's like always you see humbleness is what God is looking for. Yep. Humble and obedience and submission. Yep, yep, absolutely. And yeah. I fight with those three every single day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God never walks away from us. It's us walking away from him. Yeah, right. That's right. <clears throat> you go really well into what we heard in first service if you were in there about mm-hmm. just abiding in him. Yeah. Know? And I think that um, John uh, John 3.36 talks about uh, the disobedient will abide in his wrath mm. or remain. It's the word that you, the word ESV uses is remain, but it's the same Greek word. And so, like, to go to the whole sovereignty thing, you know, I mean, we're abiding in God, period, because mm. we're in his creation. Mm. But, you know, it's almost like, what policy are we under? Mm. Are we under the wrath? Are we, are we going to abide under the wrath, or are we going to abide in the, the love and, and um, joy and <coughs> whatever the first one was that I'm totally drawing from? Oh, yeah. Word, word. Word, thank you, yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, yeah, I think Israel. I mean, uh, you know, it's such a great picture for our own lives. We do the same thing. We mm-hmm. we are delivered, and then we kind of end up in the desert, going like, "Why? Are, what are we supposed to be doing here again?" And then God comes. You know, Moses comes down with the law, and they've already yep. chosen a new God to yep. to serve. And so I think that's just a great picture of kind of our own lives too. Is instead of being patient and waiting, we so often. Well, God must want us to do it this way. Again, take yeah. Abraham, Isaac, yep. Hagar, Ishmael. Yep. It's kind of like, well, in the gap, he must want me to act, so I'm going to go off and do this. It's like, well, no, like God's doing his own thing, so mm-hmm. be patient, wait on that, be humble um, to kind of give yourself over to him rather than constantly acting the way you think is best. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Like we're prone to want to shave off the rep- edges of God's plan. We mm-hmm. want to do something. We're in the midst of something, but yet it's not working the way we think it should be. And then mm-hmm. we kind of adjust it a little bit. A little. Mm-hmm. That old song comes to mind anything you can do, I can do better. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, for old people, that's a good day. They, they know that song. But it, yeah. it, it's that concept that we, we're not patient. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
deeply. Mm. I'd rather them just give him the glory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, like I've experienced that, like a lot of times that our way, and if God says, no, I want you to do it this way, too, Anybody else? That guy? Yeah. Again, I'm thinking about Paul in Philippians 4.13. Okay. Anybody likes to tap that verse if I can hear anything to Christ. He was talking about his contentment. And he had come to a point where he was like, I just want to know the fellowship of the suffering with Christ. And he knew how to be abasing and how to abound. Okay, uh, I'll just finish up here. Uh, just spend a couple minutes on uh, contextuality and the meaning of the Old Testament. I just want to, um, we've talked about this many times over the course of the year. I just kind of want to uh, touch base, um, bring us back to, okay, the, the continuing themes that kind of run through the entire Bible. Uh, what is God doing with all of these individual voices when he puts this together in this uh, with this kind of canonical uh, structure. Um, and so uh, if, if those of you who are with us in the spring, we talked about the Pentateuch as one larger theological narrative. And in that, we see that uh, Adam and Eve sin, breaking the covenant relationship they had with God. Seed of Abraham will renew this relationship. And this seed will be a king from the tribe of Judah. We see that, that kind of theme running through uh, the Pentateuch. Uh, The Mosaic Covenant provides temporary fulfillment, but it is not the permanent solution Moses envisions because of the heart of the people. He does envision a covenant that will come in the future where the heart will be changed. And then at the very end, we see uh, the promise that a prophet like Moses will come. Uh, And Joshua is the very next book. He is not the prophet to come who is like Moses, but he gives us an example Uh, of uh, leadership or lordship while we wait for this true leader to come. And this example, of course, is the one who meditates on the word of God day and night. When Joshua dies, there's a big void. And Judges says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, And so during the time of Judges, um, there's now not just a sin problem, but a leadership or a lordship problem as well. So now we have these these kind of issues running concurrently throughout the the story. Samuel provides a solution, or at least a glimpse of a solution, through this promise to David about uh, his kingly line. Uh, So that is the solution to this lordship problem, but uh, again, the Davidic kings do not provide the solution. They actually um, are time and time again the wrong leader, and not only give the people the wrong example, but actually lead the people into further destruction. So we actually see by the end of Kings, 
uh, the people are wiped out and um, exiled. Um, so then we get this poetic interlude, which we've been dealing with here uh, in the latter prophets these last few weeks. In Isaiah, we took two weeks to study Isaiah, and that's all about the suffering servant. Suffering servant is the one the reader's been looking for. He dies, he's pierced for the transgressions of others, so he solves the sin problem, and he's also connected to the Davidic promise. He actually solves the leadership problem as well. So the suffering servant is actually, this is, you think of this as a large story, this is actually the climax of the story, this presentation of this or one of the climaxes of the story, this presentation of this suffering servant. Uh, Jeremiah talks a lot about the new covenant and the restoration of the people, but says that it actually has to happen after the people are destroyed. It must happen later and then be built uh, on the foundation of this rubble uh, that, that happens because of this destruction. Uh, Ezekiel also talks about the, the restoration and the hope of the new covenant but he, he centers it and bases it in God's presence. The presence of God is the essential aspect of uh, the new covenant. And that why it will be different is because the presence will be in, the presence of God will be in the heart of the people and the spirit of God will transform the heart. Um, so that's the, the message of Ezekiel. And then now we see this, again, we saw it, uh, Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Um, the minor prophets continue to talk about this future restoration but they connect it very directly to the promises of the Messiah. So, um, yes, we have the, the restoration to come, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel both talk about the restoration through the New Covenant. Uh, we have these promises about the Messiah. Well, the minor prophets are really focused on connecting these two things. The restoration will come in the future, after the exile, uh, but this restoration will come th directly through this Messiah, and we have here several details about this Messiah to come. So this is, again, the, the message of the Minor Prophets and how it connects to the larger story. Uh, when we come back in the spring, uh, we'll talk about, we'll kind of pick up the story with um, the third section of the Tanakh, which is the writings or the uh, Ketalum. Um, and in that uh, section, we kind of continue on with the prophetic interlude with uh, Psalms and uh, we'll uh, kind of keep connecting the dots and continue the story on as we move on. Next week, we're going to look at Zechariah and Malachi, and I specifically want to talk about the kingdom of God there, which is another kind of uh, big overarching storyline, um, which has a lot of uh, futuristic um, eschatological um, implications. So we'll talk about the, the kingdom of God uh, next week when we talk about Zechariah and Malachi. Any uh, questions, comments on the Minor Prophets? We are five minutes early. So please ask any questions you want, questions on the Minor Prophets, connection to the rest of the Bible, uh, any, any of these uh, particular little books that we've studied. They're all really fascinating, little, really real treasures, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot of them are really small, so. Haggai <laughs> is the only book in the Bible with two chapters. Wow. I did not know that. Wow, that's cool. Interesting. Yeah. And they think he was probably really, really old. Okay. Seen the, it sounds like he had seen the original temple. Yeah, and right. Maybe the, the lack of writing speaks back then he was super old. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. These were distributed as one book. Yeah, they started being collected as one book. So, you know, we don't have a whole lot of 
knowledge of, you know, here post-exile how these things were happening, but uh, I think the best evidence from the text and from Jewish tradition is you've got a lot of these things going around and then they return and they start meeting in the temple again and, you know, start meeting in regular, you know, and, and Ezra and Nehemiah are really establishing this kind of, we're coming together and it's really the pre, really the, the establishment of the concept of the synagogue, right? Um, you're coming together and you're studying the word and uh, in, in those, you know, those years, these 12 little ones all got collected as one scroll. So they were just known as the 12. That's just, I'm gonna read from the 12. And you know, they're obviously not speaking English, but that's how they would refer to it. So, um, and then, so then how, that's how it gets in the, in the Hebrew Tanakh. And so most, um, you know, we always think of these books as 37 Old Testament books, right? Because um, that's how it is in our Bibles, the English Bibles. But um, I mean, Hebrew Bible, they, they would say there's 22, right? Because they're short, you know, 12 is just one. That's how they think of it. Um, and Kings is just one, and Samuel's just one. So it's, you know, it's really shrinking down the number. It's all, it's all the same books, but it's you know, shrinking down the number. So yeah, it's, it was collected as one scroll, and I think you can see some real intentionality in the order. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some scholars that would kind of um, suggest that there's some, some, you know, things being added to the end of them to kind of connect them you know, at different times, just little comments here that kind of connect them because they do seem to really flow. That I don't know. I mean, we don't know a whole lot about it. So we're just kind of, there's just some speculation there. But clearly I think there's a purpose behind this collection and kind of a retrofitting to a larger, larger story here. So. That makes sense because you read all these copies and you're discombobulated. Yep. 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 And they're not necessarily even chrono chronologically, I mean, some of, you know, the general they are, like these last three are all post-exile, but we did see as we've been studying through them, well, this one's actually, you know, um, it's, it comes after it in the order, but it's actually earlier in the, but it's just because the, the theme's running through that way. Yeah, and we see the, you know, it, it opened it up and made it more about the Gentiles there for a few books, and then it's kind of closing back here again. It's about the exile and the return, so. Uh, we do see a, uh, I think, a consistency there or a, a storyline. Any other questions, comments? All right, thanks, guys. We'll finish up next week.